I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. During World War II, a teenager was riding in a crowded compartment in a train with five strangers. His mother had given him a sandwich and wrapped it in a handkerchief for his lunch because food rationing was made it very difficult for travelers to find food on the train. Noon came and he was hungry, but he didn't want to eat his lunch in front of the other passengers, so he decided to wait until they got out their lunches. But no one moved. An hour passed and then another, and finally his stomach was rumbling and he decided that he had no choice. He needed to eat. So he did what others were wanting to do. He reached into his coat pocket, took out his handkerchief, and he spread it out on his lap, and then carefully broke the sandwich into six pieces while the other passengers watched in silence. Then he said a brief blessing and gave each of his fellow passengers a piece of the sandwich. At that point, everyone else reached into their pockets and bags and took out food that they had brought too and had not wanted to eat in front of others. The food was broken and they shared what they had around the compartment with a sense of feasting. And stories were told, laughter followed, and it was all shared with good food. You know, that's a really charming story. I love it. And it's the kind of story that we probably all heard in connection with sermons on today's gospel, because it is one of the most common explanations of the miracle that Jesus performed and has been since the 19th century. The crowds followed Jesus into a deserted area. It was too late for everyone to go home or go to the market. And in an act of sharing, the generosity of Jesus prompted everyone else to get out their food as well. And so everyone in the crowd was fed. But the problem with that explanation is that it has absolutely nothing to do with the way in which Matthew tells the story. What both the contemporaries of Jesus and Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel would have heard in the feeding of the crowd were words from Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The passage in Deuteronomy promises that with the death of Moses, God will continue to send Israel prophets. But by Jesus's day, that passage had also become a common part of messianic expectations. God had promised a new Moses. And here he is, Matthew is saying, in a deserted place, gathering and feeding Israel with manna. He cares for them, 
as Moses cared for the children of Israel. And as if Jesus had not already made his point well enough, Matthew notes that there was enough in the way of leftovers to feed 12 tribes. We could talk today about the case for the existence of God and the evidence for miracles, but in a way that subject is just as much off point as the story that we began with. What is more on point is this question. What kind of kingdom does Jesus point to in this miracle? A kingdom made possible by God or by right thinking and right acting people? I say that because I suspect that preachers who have told stories of transforming generosity in connection with this passage have done so when they reflect on this story, not just because they are repelled by the miraculous, but because they are equally repelled by the notion that our well-being, in fact, our very futures, are dependent upon God. It is easier somehow more respectable and even more attractive to believe that Jesus is all about human and social transformation than to believe that our transformation and the transformation of the world might be dependent in the final analysis upon God and our willingness to surrender our lives to God. You see that a lot right now, even in the church. Christians are just as enthralled to politics as are any other Americans, and just as much at odds with one another over what kind of politics is the right kind of politics. Even the solutions to the challenges that we face and that are revolving around our lives right now are based upon the same kinds of conversations about civic debates. If our problem has been from time to time that we have over-spiritualized the challenges that we face, now the problem seems to be that there is no spiritual dimension to the challenges we face at all. As I said some weeks ago, I am sure that conversations about issues like race theory and the like are all making a contribution to our conversation. All truth is God's truth. But I am also equally certain that if the gospel slips from the center of our preaching, or if it is subtly transformed into a message of either personal or social improvement, then we will no longer be preaching the same message that we find in the gospels. So again, what kind of kingdom does Jesus point to in this miracle? If one takes the gospel story on its own terms and avoids explaining it away in one fashion or another, the answer, of course, is pretty clear. For one thing, the feeding of the 5,000 is an epiphany. It is a manifestation of the divine, and it reveals important truths about Jesus and about the kingdom of God. It is also a public enactment that points the crowd to a specific conclusion. Jesus is the new Moses. He is the one who cares for his people in the wilderness, who offers an understanding of the law that transcends their efforts to pin it down to a few requirements. But he is more. 
The miracles he works announce the presence of the kingdom, and they also reveal his identity. In short, the kingdom of God is the kingdom enacted by God. It is not a place or a territory, unless one thinks of the reclamation of the whole of creation as a place, and it is not a policy or a program. In fact, in English, it is more accurate to describe the kingdom of God as the reign of God because it exists only when and where people live in dependence upon God, only when and where they are fed and cared for by God, only when and where people hear God's word and do God's will. Similarly, the one who feeds them is more than the expected prophet of Deuteronomy. He knows the will of God with an immediacy that the best of his contemporaries lack. And Jesus' teaching cannot be reduced to a program and miracles that he works. They reveal, in fact, more. They reveal his divinity. Settling for anything less when we talk about Jesus falls well short of what the Christian faith claims. Be it Jesus the spirit-filled man, Jesus the charismatic, Jesus the cynic philosopher or great moral teacher, or Jesus the proto-socialist, these are all distortions of the message that the gospel offers us, and it distorts what we make of Jesus and of the reign of God. And none of these views of him are the basis of the church's faith and creeds. As important as it is to know that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in it all the way, that identification with our circumstances is little consolation if Jesus is no more than a profoundly empathetic human being who is willing to put himself in harm's way. There are countless figures past and present of that kind, and none of them command the attention and devotion in the same way that Jesus does. So where does that leave us as the disciples of Jesus? Exactly where both the crowds that followed Jesus and the disciples who gave him everything they had to feed the people find themselves they have themselves, or give themselves rather, to a life of availability. That availability is not availability to a particular program or to a political party or faction or to an alternative creed about the purposes of God. It is, in fact, vulnerability and availability to God himself. What does that look like? Let me offer an example. The very present and presence and intensity of the conversations that we have had of late, never to mind to mention the deaths and statistics that we have discussed, reveal that racism remains a problem in our country. At the extremes of that debate, there are people who would deny that that is the case or would prefer to ignore it. At the other end of the spectrum are those who have discussed the issue in a way that threatens to introduce a new variety of racism into the national debate. By contrast, 
Martin Luther King and Congressman John Lewis, who died this week, lived lives of availability to the purposes of God. They believed in forthright witness and protest in the face of racial injustice, but they resisted violence. They longed for healing that addressed those issues, but they celebrated a God-given dream that transcended the divisions of their day and looked forward to a larger world. They were also all at the same time concrete and specific in their expectations about how things might change. I am convinced that that kind of availability can still give us a place to stand today on racism and on any other difficult questions that we face as Christians. It will not be a comfortable place because it will not provide us with a place to hide and because it will not allow us to take sides or sign up for any kind of partisanship that claims our lives and distracts our attention from the will of God. It will not allow us to flatly praise some and demonize others. Instead, it will be a place where our first and decisive question will always be, how can I be available to the purposes of God's reign in the world? If we ask that question like Jesus, we will often find ourselves at odds with the world around us, but it will lead us back into the world at peace with God and in availability to the work of God in our world. Amen.